From the beginning of my time here at Christ Church, we established the discipline of building our worship life around the traditional church year patterned on the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. The assigned Sunday readings follow a three-year cycle, which means that, with some exceptions, I don't generally choose the scriptures that are read. For the most part, we take it as it comes as we plan worship. This means that over three years, the congregation is exposed to quite a lot of the Bible as opposed to a collection of my favorite passages. And honestly, that's a principal reason we do it, to make our worship less about the leaders and more about the astonishingly rich and wise Christian tradition. So, for instance, you won't find what we read from Luke today being read in many celebrity-driven megachurches more invested in topics like God's plan for your financial prosperity or other motivational messages appealing to consumerist sensibilities. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with financial prosperity. I'm all for it. It's just that you won't find a topic like that on Jesus' preaching roster. That's because there's a vast difference between what we want versus what we actually need. And addressing this reality is a tricky business in a market-driven religious economy. Consumers go where they can get what they want. For instance, I bet Love Your Enemies ranks right up there as one of your least favorite teachings and most ignored. Who in their right mind today thinks that ought to be a real goal or even desirable, let alone at all possible? Honestly, wouldn't you rather hate the bastards and get revenge? Few people attend worship hoping their behavior patterns and beliefs are deeply challenged. They'd much rather have their point of view affirmed and celebrated, even revved into an inspiring tribal excitement, the way sports fans root for the winning team. We come to hear what we like to hear. That's what the best marketers would have us do. Give the people what they want. Do that really, really well. Funny thing, though, our readings today drop into our moment of increasingly fractured and hostile civil discourse, or maybe I should say uncivil discourse, with pundits debating such topics as, are we headed to another civil war? As many of you know, even our denomination, the United Methodist Church, languishes in a pre-schism morass of political incivility. It's all about sex and sexuality. Who's legit and who isn't? Who's part of the team and who isn't? Who's in, who's out? And I can tell you, feelings run hot. One leading pastor characterized our moment this way. We're in a cage match. The loser can't get up off the mat. The winner is beaten up, bloodied, battered. Such is the situation among the Methodist Christians, supposed disciples of Christ, who said things like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, forgive and you will be forgiven, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is a hard word to hear. Hard because part of me would rather not hear it. And hearing it, I'd rather ignore it. That's the feral Steve Bauman that's aroused. 
Now, given other things Jesus lived and taught, I know he doesn't mean for us to passively give up our commitment to justice and righteousness. I know this because of how his own life tracked, how he confronted, sometimes angrily and always relentlessly, the injustices and self-righteous prejudices of his day, all of which led him to the cross when he was heard to say paradoxically, mysteriously, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Willing to die for the sake of love, even his enemies were meant to be included. Do to others as you would have them do to you. What do you think? Is that a child's rhyme or a way of life? As for me, it lies behind all that Jesus lived and taught and sets a very high bar for the kind of hospitality we should offer as a people of God. Who should be excluded? Who should not be treated as I would like to be treated? Day in and day out, it's a hard standard though, isn't it? Consider your own enemy list. In a few minutes, we'll pray for them. Earlier, we heard how Joseph forgave his brothers who years prior had sold him into slavery because they hated his arrogance and his place at his father's, as his father's favorite. That's the backstory. Now, years later, in a time of famine, they've come to Egypt as refugees. Shockingly, Joseph has become Pharaoh's second in command with great power to exact revenge. And who could blame him? Why not do to his brothers as they had done to him? That's what they feared when they learned the identity of this overlord. But Joseph did the unexpected thing, the larger thing, the forgiveness thing, and God's purposes were advanced. Some years ago, I interviewed a number of people for my PhD dissertation on the intersections between forgiveness and leadership. Among them, Ann Curry, who was then co-anchor of the NBC Today Show. We had a rich, wide-ranging, on-the-record conversation on the meanings of forgiveness and how it played out in her life and work. At the end, as a kind of culminating exclamation point, she told the story of a young African woman she encountered while on a journalism assignment. She reported that Sarah was 17 when she was kidnapped by the men who had just killed her parents. They took her and they chained her to a tree and they kept her there. Then she became their sex slave and finally, when they had no more use for her because her legs wouldn't work anymore, they left her for dead because she was not worth anything. Eventually, she was discovered chained to that tree. Some men came from the village and they rescued her and carried her to a hospital. When I met her, she was about to undergo surgery because she had been so broken, she could no longer go to the bathroom normally. She was now 18 beautiful, shivering under a blanket when she saw me, invited me to see her, and mute, both of us.
I saw her shivering, and I grabbed her hand. It was all I could do because it was time for the surgery to begin. When I came back the next day, she told me what had happened to her, and I said, do you want revenge against those men who did this to you? And she said, no, all I want is to rise from this bed, thank the people who rescued me, perhaps feel a mother's love again, and work for God. Ms. Curry paused a long moment before continuing in a quiet, thoughtful voice, as though thinking out loud, figuring out the inner equation. Forgiveness does not mean that you easily come to forgiving everything that happens to you or to others. It's a path. In Sarah's case, it was unforgivable until she forgave. It was absolutely unforgivable what had happened to her, and yet she forgave. That's the lesson, I think. That is the beauty and the glory of what's possible in our kind. This forgiveness does not, should not preclude justice bringing perpetrators of terrible atrocities to trial and judgment for crimes. Forgiveness has a different focus. It's an agenda concerning the future. Forgiveness is a profoundly personal activity, touching the deepest aspects of human experience and our relatedness to others. It has an honored place in defining what it means to be human I know from many, many conversations that we have great difficulty becoming deeply reflective about what forgiveness is and how it's situated in our lived experience. To look at it full on is to look into a mirror of one's own soul. In this sense, it can be an act of bravery it is initially an act of laying down one's arms, of disarmament, but not passively, not by relinquishing a fierce commitment to justice and love. Forgiveness is a choice about one's relationship to the future and who one wishes to become. This is not done in resignation or out of weakness, but instead as an explicit attempt at creating something different than what has been. We see that in the story of Joseph. And we see it in the life and death of Jesus. This call to love and to forgive, to do to others as we would like to have done to us, is all about the future. It's future-oriented. It's not about healing the past. That can't be accomplished and remains a common misunderstanding about the focus of forgiveness. The past is done, over. Forgiveness is all about what's possible ahead, creating something new, something restored and reconciled, something better. Shortly we'll pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
we are invited to be God's partners, bringing forth this in-breaking kingdom. That's the invitation Jesus extends to his followers as he admonishes them to expand the range of their love. That's why I'm so committed to renewing our church to include all persons equally. The spirit will inevitably disrupt the status quo because it's constantly bringing forth the new thing, the different thing, the love and forgiveness thing, the thing that opens the door into the future. 